Today's Game of Thrones Season 7 premiere feedback show is sponsored by True Car. There's something about True Car a lot of people don't know. Using True Car can help you buy a used car as well. In fact, there are over 700,000 pre-owned vehicles available from True Car certified dealers nationwide. And whether you're looking to buy a new or used car, you can get upfront pricing information that empowers discounts off the list price for used cars and a better buying experience through the True Car certified dealer network. When you use True Car, you'll get to see what other people are paying for the car that you want, and you can know what a fair price is and feel confident without even having to visit the Iron Bank of Bravos. With True Car, you'll connect with a local certified dealer of your choosing so you can enjoy a quick and easy car buying experience. And using True Car, you'll easily find the newer used car that you want. Best of all, True Car users save an average of over $3,000 off of MSRP. So when you're ready to buy that new or used car, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features are not available in all states or kingdoms of Westeros. The Game of Thrones Season 7 premiere is still over, but we're just getting started answering your feedback here on the Game of Thrones post-show recap. And now, here are the two guys less popular than Ed Sheeran on Twitter. I'm Rob Sister, and here is Josh Wiggler. Josh, how are you? I mean, I don't know if that's true. I haven't deleted my Twitter yet. Well, we can stand up to the heat, not like Ed Sheeran. Uh, yeah, uh, poor Ed Sheeran. I mean, just like to cast the poor guy out of social media. What, 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 we're all so awful. This is terrible. No, he's too precious. <laughs> he's a snowflake, Josh. Oh my God, don't do that. Yes, don't he's a Lannister man. Don't do that. Yeah. Don't do that. A yeah. Lord Snowflake. Yes. The king in the north, John Snowflake. <laughs> so, Josh, uh, a lot to uh, discuss, and I was very impressed with the amount of uh, ravens that we had pouring in, much like Sam at the Citadel, just uh, firing away. You and I answering all these uh, feedback with Alex Kidwell going through them. It was like a, uh, a montage of Sam. <laughs> yeah, you start to, uh, you know, it's kind of like the, the fine differences between food and feces after a while. It's like, what's going to be a good meal? What's going to be a good uh, what's going to be a good piece of feedback here? What's going to just be, you know, discarded? But most of it was uh, most of it stayed. Most of it stuck to the wall, Rob. Okay. Well, we have a lot of stuff to get into here. A lot of gross metaphors going on there. This is our third Game of Thrones podcast of the week. So hopefully you guys are into the rhythm of uh, what we have going on. So Sunday nights, I'll be back live with Stephen Fishback. I'll also add a link to watch us live on Sunday nights on the Post Show Recaps website. I think a lot of people were confused about where to go. We were on the Post Show Recaps Facebook page, but you can simply go to on Sunday night night postshowrecaps.com slash live i'll also uh, have a post on the front page of the website where you can uh, find us more easily come sunday nights and then josh and i did our first deep dive of the season and uh, josh i thought that was very fun that was really fun yeah lots to lots to talk about fun to give my takes on the show and now we've got some feedback to go through to give even more takes 
And then here's where we hear what you guys have to say on our feedback show. So make sure you don't miss any of it when you subscribe to the podcast at postshowrecaps.com slash G-O-T iTunes. Uh, Josh, I had the pleasure on Tuesday of appearing on the Adam Carolla podcast to talk about what we're doing here on Post Show Recaps. Lord Carolla of of the Man Show fame. Uh, yes. How was that? How was everything going on with Adam Carolla? It was really fun. Adam Carolla does not watch Game of Thrones. That I think that he is sort of uh, put off by the. He doesn't really like the idea of gladiators. He's too much. Uh, he thinks it's too sci-fi. He thinks that like gla- does he think this is scandal? There are no gladiators on Game of Thrones. This isn't uh, Russell Crowe showing up here. There's a lot of <laughs> fighters. There's a lot of warriors. There's not a lot of gladiating going on. Certainly not anymore. Yeah. Well, that's the reason why he didn't get into it in the beginning. I it's think also he- just kind of a curious phobia, like gladiator phobia. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, too fantasy. I think that there's uh, some people, the few holdouts to Game of Thrones. I think that that's why they're. Not, it might be uh, too nerd adjacent but uh, and it's too mainstream now it's too mainstream now i think uh, hipsters need to stop watching it, it got too yeah, big i i think now you're the nerd if you don't watch game of thrones <laughs> yeah that's what, right you don't watch game of thrones you don't watch this highly elaborate fantasy show Psh, what a nerd okay well josh we have uh, a lot of stuff to uh get to uh on the feedback docket where do you want to start today well, we got a lot to go through. Once again, kudos to Alex Kidwell for putting all of this together. And thanks to all of you guys for sending in your Ravens. We're going to talk about basically everything from the episode, or at least we'll try to hit on every storyline and lots of questions and all of that. Let's start with where things ended, uh, which was Dragonstone, Rob and Daenerys' homecoming. Very, very fun to watch Danny come home to Westeros for the first time, return to the place where she was born. Uh, we've waited all season long all series long rather for this to happen and now it's finally here and it's really kind of an epic historic moment but kevin epley is more focused on something else rob this is from kevin who writes in did you guys see Missande, gray worm Tyrion, and danny's outfits what the heck is going on did this story slip into the marvel universe in between season six and seven please help me uh kevin referring to the fact that the targaryens now look like x-men rob did you notice this <laughs> then the uniforms of the targaryens i mean we have not I seen like a targaryen army is this possible that this is what they're going for well, I know that um, you know the costume designer of Game of Thrones gave some interviews before the season and spoke about the new look for Danny and the Targaryens as kind of being somewhat inspired by what Viserys Targaryen was wearing back in season one. So it's actually fairly similar to that, or at least uh, it's not far away from that, which is like kind of this dark leather and sort of this like you know like this like really like black armor kind of look to it. Sort of you know looks Drogon esque even, uh, and that was Ooh. before Drogon was in the picture so i think that there's there's something there i think that it kind of looks cool and i kind of like the idea of daenerys paying tribute to the guy who wanted to come back to westeros and take over and be king but just didn't have the stuff to pull it off uh so i don't mind it i guess it does kind of look similar to like the brian singer x-men costumes like i do think that there is something there but i don't know that i would have even thought about it if it hadn't been brought up here so now we all get to think about it hey look if you're on Greyjoy can get a makeover why can't Daenerys and her troop? How great does Euron Greyjoy look, by the way? Yeah, really good. <laughs> really. Uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed Euron Greyjoy. I'm, I'm yep. into the new Euron. Uh, we talked about this uh, going into the season. Uh, you thought that maybe it was just going to be hype. 
Yeah, well, it still could be just hype, yeah. but I mean, as far as uh, the aesthetic, I mean, humana humana, right? Well, I'm I, just saying. Yeah, was, I do like looks, that he, he is, good. Uh, there's a Negan-ish vibe to him now, so uh, I'm, you know I'm into that. A lot of people saying uh, he looks uh, he looks too Joshua Jackson for their liking, like it's just a little bit eerie, the similarities the between... Eerie. Uh, yeah, the <laughs> yeah, he's just behind a thin veil of uh, thin the veil of Joshua Jackson. All right, this is from uh, John Krause, who had written in about Dragonstone. Where the heck are all the people in Dragonstone? When we last saw it, which was season two or three, Stannis was leaving it to go to the Wall, but he definitely left people behind. So, what do you think about this, Rob? What do you think about the fact that Dragonstone seems to be completely empty? Should there not be like some people? People here still so first off dragonstone is this really barren place you can't grow anything there it's very hard to get the resources in so you have this situation where there's almost no food to speak of there and then on top of it you have these are people who were the stannis loyalists uh that would have been left behind i'm sure they got word that stannis's army is now left for dead dead and so i think that they're probably going to hightail it out of there if they were remaining because they must feel like that maybe the boltons are going to come there and go after uh, what's left of stannis's uh, stronghold do you want to do you want me to throw a pet theory at you sure what if you know everyone's so hyped about the idea that gendry could be coming back this season what if Gendry is hiding out in Dragonstone? Like, what if he just, like, couldn't figure out how to row away, and he was just, like, rowing around Dragonstone Island for a long time, and then he started to notice that everybody was leaving, and they were all heading out, and he's like, oh, well, I can just be, like, the king of Dragonstone and be here by myself, and he's just been living luxuriously all by himself here on Dragonstone, and suddenly the Targaryens show up, and now he has to, like, go into hiding like Newt from Aliens. Well, I love the idea of a Gendry reappearance. I would be surprised if Gendry's move was just to circle Dragonstone a couple times and then come right back where he started. Well, it's not by choice. He just literally couldn't <laughs> row anywhere else. He, he told Davos he's never done it before. He doesn't know yeah. how to swim either. Yeah, that's true. Uh, he seems like a strong guy, though. You would think that he'd be able to row eventually. I mean, that was season three. Yeah, but, you know, who knows about navigation? He's definitely strong, so he would be strong enough to just swim in circles for, like, three seasons. It's not out of the realm of possibility. Yeah, the seven realms of possibility. All right, let's stay on the topic of Dragonstone and a potential meeting at Dragonstone in the future now that we know that Dragonglass is there and Jon Snow wants Dragonglass. So Sam is obviously going to re- write to Jon Snow and that's probably going to get Jon and Danny in the same orbit. So this is a question from Brett F. who wrote in and said, The big question for me and Jon and Danny potentially meeting at Dragonstone is if Bran gets to Jon and relays his parentage story before he meets Danny. Will this happen or will Bran or a raven get to Winterfell too late. What do you think about this? Uh, do we think that we're going to see John and Daenerys whenever they meet? Will John already know 
that he's a Targaryen, or will he have not interacted with Bran yet? Or does Bran even know that Jon is a Targaryen? Well, I think that Bran knows from uh, what we saw in the season six finale, but I think that the person that you need to watch for in this storyline is Littlefinger. He is the guy who does seem to know all of these secrets, and there was uh, certainly some talk from the season seven trailers. It looks as though we're getting to see Jon Snow in the crypts below Winterfell with Littlefinger. So potentially that could be how Jon learns that information. This was a question from Hoyt Spearman, who had written in and said, who do you think is going to reveal John's true parentage and how do they prove it to the rest of the realm? So your answer to that would be Littlefinger. Your money is on Littlefinger being the guy to tell John what's going on. Now, could it be that Bran ends up telling John the story and then Littlefinger confirms it or vice versa, where you have Littlefinger telling Jon Snow that he has this important information about his heritage and then Bran comes in and confirms it? I don't know, but I feel like that Littlefinger is part of that equation. I like that second possibility a lot. I really like Littlefinger trying to like throw this at John as a way of weakening him or at least getting under his skin. Like you can imagine that scene in the crypt of you know Littlefinger like confirming R plus L equals J essentially in a really offhanded spiteful way of like you think you're the king in the north and you think you're Ned Stark's son and you think all these people have finally accepted you but you really are still just a bastard and you're just the bastard for the wrong people and this is who your real people are and you could imagine John getting really upset about that not trusting Littlefinger not believing a word he says maybe going off to meet Danny with those seeds of doubt in his mind and then somehow joining up with Bran later on down the line and getting that confirmed for him and then having to reconcile with it I think that that's a pretty possible chain of events can I bounce something off of you and you tell me if this would fit in with what you know about Westerosi law, but could Littlefinger come in and make this case to John about his Targaryen lineage and push Jon Snow, hey, you should be on the Iron Throne. You need to be the guy down in King's Landing and then ultimately set him up for some fall where then does Sansa as a relative of Jon Snow then become next in line for the Iron Throne? Mm, I don't know. And so like to push him towards the Iron Throne and not even have Daenerys as part of the equation, you're saying. Right. Cut her out completely. Yeah, I think that Sansa would probably be next in line. Uh, and then Littlefinger of, in comes the in as the husband of Sansa. Wow, that's the power move. Is that how this is all going to end? I just don't know what Littlefinger's claim to the Iron Throne. If we take him at his word that he wants everything and we see him sort of like longing for the Iron Throne and chaos is a ladder, if that's his ultimate goal to get to the Iron Throne, I mean, to me, I feel like that that's the first thing that we can talk about where that at least he's in the secession plan. 
Tom Palmer had written in and said, I'm a huge Littlefinger fan, and from where I'm sitting, he's done the most to earn the Iron Throne, but how does he get there from his current position? Uh, I don't know if that I'm, uh, I would say that he's done the most to earn the Iron Throne, but he certainly is somebody who wants the he's Iron Throne the a lot. He's worked pretty hard, uh, and you've definitely sketched out a possibility there, which could be interesting to see if that's part of his plan. It couldn't have been his plan all along. I mean, I guess maybe it could have if he's known about this secret, you know, kind of like ace in the hole regarding John for a long time yeah if he looked at sansa as a key it would be hard to like get the cocktail napkin of what little finger was thinking at one time and how much he's sort of like improving on the fly let's keep talking about little finger for a quick second you want to take a voicemail i would love to all right let's hear from an old friend of ours who we haven't heard from in a little while let's take a voicemail from omri from jerusalem first of his name hey robin josh how are you this is omri from jerusalem first of my name one of the best scenes of the premiere, in my opinion, was Sansa silencing Littlefinger. But you have to question her judgment here. She knows that what he's after is the throne and her, Sansa. But his lust for power came much earlier than his desire for her. With Cersei's desperate need for allies, you have to assume that Jon's raven wasn't the only one she sent. And I know that when Peter got his letter, his response wasn't a negative. And the last time they were together... He's, he promised Cersei Sansa's head on a spike in exchange for the wardenship of the North. Isn't Sansa risking too much here? Isn't she risking the losing the Knights of the Vale? So what do you think about this? Do you think that with Cersei sending out ravens and announcing everybody, bend the knee, I'm the Queen of Westeros, do you think that Littlefinger is catching word of that? And do you think that Littlefinger would flirt with the possibility of bringing the forces of the Vale back onto Cersei's side? To what end? I feel like we're talking about that Sansa seems to be a key to power for Littlefinger. I don't think that the veil is very much in his long-term plans. It feels like that that is more of a stop along the way for him and not his ultimate goal. So, I don't know, bringing Sansa back to Cersei, I'm not sure what that buys him because I think that uh, Cersei and Jaime talked about this in the premiere that, you know, we're on the losing side. I don't think that Littlefinger believes that Cersei and the Lannisters are going to come out on top. Uh, Let's start talking about Sansa a little bit then, because I think that she's an interesting person in all of this. This is from Robert Craig, who writes in and says, Sansa seems like she's going to be a problem for Jon. How do you think this is going to play out? Do you think that she's going to turn on him? Do you think Jon will turn over the North to her to go after the White Walkers or maybe something else? Uh, We certainly saw Rob, Sansa and Jon not agreeing on things very publicly in the halls of Winterfell over the whole issue about uh, what should happen to the Umbers and the Karstarks and their homes. Should they go to new people because their fathers uh, had betrayed the Starks or what? And Jon has a very different opinion than Sansa does. But when they meet privately, like Sansa's very encouraging. She's telling Jon, you're a good leader. You're really good at this. You just have to be smarter than our dead father and brother, because clearly they were not so smart and they got killed for their actions. So you just have to think about things a little bit more. And John and Sansa just seem to disagree on what those issues actually are. To me, I think that Sansa seems loyal to John and just disagrees with how John is going about certain issues. But do you think that it's a worse problem than that? Do you think that Sansa eventually is going to take action against John? I don't know that Sansa so we don't actually know what her motivation is in all of this. We've seen her come into her own 
But do you feel like that we have a clear idea of what Sansa ultimately wants? I think to be alive and happy would be great. I think that those are probably, sure. you know, those are the most important things. And probably even happiness is, uh, is a luxury. But does she point. want more than that? I don't know that she wants supreme power. I mean, she's been so close. She went to King's Landing. That's what she, you know, if you had asked her at the start of the series, what do you want to be when you grow up? I think Queen of Westeros sounded like a pretty cushy gig. And then she went to King's Landing and saw how the sausage gets made. And it's terrible. It involves, you know, a lot of backstabbing and murdering and, uh, you know, arranged marriages that nobody involved wants to be involved in and abuse and rape and horrible things. And she did not have a good experience during any of her travels across the show, and I don't know why she would be desperate to reclaim that. It would be a different thing if it was something that she felt duty-bound to, like if she felt like you know she was honor-bound to something. And I think that she is a northerner, and I think that she's really come into her own as a Stark over the past couple of seasons, really, uh, and you know the big role she played in the Battle of the Bastards. So I think that she's in this to stay alive, to keep the North strong, to keep House Stark strong. And for those reasons, I really think that her her destiny does lie here. And I can't imagine her going back to King's Landing. So on Sunday night, Josh, Stephen and I were debating who is ultimately correct. Is it the John worldview or the Sansa worldview? And what does the show want us to think at this point? And I thought that as the scene was playing out that John was making the wrong decision and I was much more Team Sansa of like, oh, here we go again. Dumb Starkism is back with Jon Snow as King in the North. But the way that it played out, it definitely felt like based on the reaction in the room that John made the right decision. So what do you think is the right worldview, the Sansa worldview or the John worldview? Can it be both? And I think one of the things is for John, he is strengthening the North by doing what he does here. It's a it's a really powerful statement of you can be forgiven as long as you swear to the cause and you promise like the, the wars of the past are in the past and all that matters is now in the future. And for all of that, are we square? We're square? Cool. Uh, I think that that is a, is a great rallying moment for the North. And these are the people who live here. These are the people who live on the front lines of the Great War to come. And he needs to keep those people together. He needs those people to hold. And he's already going to be unpopular by integrating the wildlings into the mix as much as he is. So to, to give up those ancestral homes to people from like the Vale, when the people from the Vale may have business that takes them elsewhere or brings them back to the Erie, you know, that brings them back down to where they came from. They're not necessarily here to stay. So why make that kind of investment when you can, you know, really invest in the people that are automatically here already and anyone who may be wavering now they're solid. So I think that there's logic behind that. And I don't like that Sansa was so open in how she challenged John in the room. I think mm-hmm. that that was maybe something she could have said in private. But her argument has a lot of sense to it, too, in terms of, well, this would be the thing that would get our new allies to stay. Um, I think John is more right than Sansa in this one, particularly. But I think that the way that it all went about that it was it was feuding, you know, they were feuding so publicly is a bad look for for both of them. Um, what do you think? Do you still think that John's worldview is incorrect? I feel like it's correct, but I don't think that John is going to be at Winterfell for very much longer this season. That whatever happens, John is going to be off, going to uh, go battle 
against the Night's King or even potentially going to uh, meet up with Daenerys. So I think that Sansa is going to be the person who ends up calling the shots at Winterfell. Yeah, I think ultimately that's where we're going to go. Uh, can't wait to see the day. But I think uh, for, for now, she's got a, she's got great ideas about leadership, uh, but she just has to, I think, finesse that a little bit more. I think, you know, just like publicly calling out the king in the north in front of everybody, it's not a great look. Uh, so, you know, I, I, you know I'm a big Sansa fan and a big Sansa supporter, and I would love to see her be the queen in the north one day. And I do think that that's probably where we'll go eventually. Uh, I just think that for, for that moment, uh, not, not great. They got to get on great. the same page. Got got to get on the same page or at least if they're not going to be on the same page they got to come to some sort of understanding off script like off screen like that should not happen in front of people that's right uh let's talk about other members of house stark let's talk about bran for a minute uh jack may had written in and said do you think that bran going south of the wall is going to be what allows the white walkers to also go past the wall we already saw the mark on bran's arm dissolve the magic that protected them in the three-eyed raven's hideout is that going to factor in again what do you think about that rob we we did see that back in season six that when bran is walking through the vision and the night king grabs him by the forearm and sears his mark into him and that seemingly allows the night king and the white walkers to come through the three-eyed raven's cave is that also going to extend to the wall now that bran is passing through so i don't know enough about the magic that is going on in the north i know that there was according to uh the text a lot of magic involved in building the wall i don't know if there is magic that keeps the knight's king uh from crossing the wall like some sort of like invisible fencing or very visible fencing in this case josh do you know for a fact allegedly that's what uncle benjen says and there's certainly there's runes and stuff beneath the wall that you do hear about and read about in the books but we haven't had to test the theory of Keto white walker pass through the wall we've seen whites pass through the wall we saw the uh we saw the the guy who came back from the dead back in season one that almost killed lord commander mormont uh so that we know but we haven't seen a white walker come past the wall i don't think um brand's mark being the thing that got the three-eyed ravens high out on the Night King's radar. I don't think that that's going to play a role in what's happening at the wall only because and maybe I'm you know maybe there's going to be a scene in episode two or episode three that's immediately going to debunk this but my my thinking is wouldn't they have made like some sort of like bigger deal out of Bran passing into Castle Black if there was something on his arm that was responsible for the White Walkers now being able to just traipse through whether or not it's just like a shot of his arm or something flickering on his forearm or something that like associates the this mark with the night king some attention to that mark and i think the fact that the show didn't do anything like that and maybe now i'm just like you know you know putting my guards down at at a moment too soon but i feel like however the white walkers are going to hit the wall or come past the wall i don't think it's going to be brand's fault i don't think this one we're going to be able to lay at brand's feet i also think that the three-eyed raven might have imparted that knowledge on him that if you cross the wall then you're going to have 
have problems. You think Uncle Go find another tree cave. <laughs> yeah, Uncle Benjamin might have said, whatever you do, don't go back across the wall. Trust me right. on this. But going back to that scene where the Night's King ultimately was able to find Bran, I think that if, and correct me if I'm wrong, Josh, that the Three-Eyed Raven had some sort of magical properties around the tree that sort of like cloaked them from the Night's King. And then when Bran was dreaming and the Night's King touched him, then he was able to pinpoint where they were GPS style to be able to track them down. I don't think that this is a matter of that the they don't know where the wall is and that Bran has crossing it is going to lead them back to there. Oh yeah, if the White Walkers don't know where the wall is, then like I don't feel like we should be that worried about the White Walkers. They need a giant map like Cersei. <laughs> well, they've got a giant white on their side. How mm-hmm. about that uh, that gigantic zombie man that was uh, that was traveling with the White Walkers? This is from Dominic Malpetti, who says at the beginning of the episode we got a close up of the undead army, including an undead giant. Then a fast cut to Bran. Was Bran having a vision, or was he warging into the giant? Can Bran? warg into the undead uh what was your interpretation of that whole scene rob i had not thought about was that one of brand's visions or if it was just something that we were seeing i thought it was more that we were just seeing what was going on just a little check-in hey don't forget about these guys yeah, uh, there's been some speculation that this was like a vision of the future. Uh, we know from Bran's visions in season six that he saw what we thought at the time was the Mad King setting King's Landing on wildfire. But those shots are actually from the season six finale when Cersei blew up the Sept of Baelor. So Bran, it seems like not only can he go deep into the past, but he also can see traces of the future. So some people thought that this vision of the White Walkers marching through a field was actually them in Westeros. That was actually them on the other side of the wall. And I'm not ruling that out. That's a really, really scary prospect to consider. But one of the big, I think, um, one of the big misconceptions, at least in my opinion, I'm not on board with it, is that this giant was 1-1. Did you have any thoughts that this was 1-1? I think you and Steven talked about it a little bit on the snow at all. You know, Josh, this is pretty offensive to me that people think all giants are the same that (laughs) that, 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 that's wrong to say that any giant is a one one i look at each giant as their own person and i don't think that all giants look alike yeah no i think that's a great stance to have you know i think uh you know it can't it's not one one you know it's not one 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 is gone it's very sad the thing that I think made people think that it was one one is that he only has one eye, one one eye, mm-hmm. uh, and that's of course how one one died. He got shot in the eye by Ramsey Bolton. That was like the final shot that took him down. But it's the other eye when you when you go back and you look at the Battle of the Bastards and then you look at this scene from the premiere. It's not the same eye. It's the opposite one. He also has like a scar on his forehead that's really similar to a wound that one one sustains on his forehead in the Battle of the Bastards. But again, it's on the opposite side. So maybe it's a mirror image. I guess hmm. is not you know a mirror read image. Yeah, mirror read image. It's not out of the realm of possibility. I suppose <laughs> the seven realms of possibility. Uh, 
But he also was riddled with arrows when he was killed, and there are no arrows on this giant white. So I'm inclined to think it's not 1-1. Yeah. But it's certainly designed to at least make you think it is, which makes you a little bit suspicious at the very least. Do you think it's the future, or do you think that this is just like something that Bran is seeing on the other side of the wall, that the, that the White Walkers are coming in close? I think it's the present. I don't think that this is one of Bran's visions. Well, if it is the present, then why is it so dark wherever the White Walkers are, but it seems uh, pretty clear in Crystal where Bran is. Aren't they not that far apart right now? I don't know. Why is there a huge snowstorm where the Hound and Beric Dondarrion are, and Arya, who is just uh, leaving the Riverlands, is in like a nice climate with Ed Sheeran? Yeah. Man, uh, the weather is so unpredictable in Westeros and the lands beyond. Who knows? Who, Who knows? knows? Who All knows? Right, Josh, before we get to our next feedback question, let me just take a moment and quickly thank our sponsor. And those are our friends over at CanvasPeople.com. CanvasPeople.com. They know that it might be winter in Westeros, but summer is here. Everybody is doing all sorts of fun stuff, uh, whether it's vacation and weddings and hopefully not the red variety. And you're taking lots of pictures. And CanvasPeople.com has a great offer for you to mount some of those pictures on your wall, on the wall. You can try it out for zero dollars. That's right. They'll let you try it out for free. You just pay the shipping. When you use the offer post, uh, promo code post at canvaspeople.com, you can try out an 11 by 14 canvas photo and use the word post and you get it for free. Just pay the shipping. It's about 20 bucks. Now, Josh, do you think that Daenerys potentially at Dragonstone may want to redecorate with some canvas photos? Yeah, I mean, Dragonstone is really cool. I love the uh, the the rock formations and like kind of like the obsidian sheen to everything. It's very emo. It's very gothic. It matches really well with Daenerys's costumes or outfits or uniforms, whatever you want to call them. But they really could use some decorations yeah. and some photos of the loved ones would be nice. Sure, you know, the Targaryens are all but forgotten at this point. Sure, that you would like a Targaryen sigil if you could, and then how about some Khal Drogo? Of, yeah, I was gonna say some. Sort of called drugs, maybe a Dario. Dario, memento. I don't sure, know if we want to remember Dario. Yeah, yeah. all right. Oh my god, hopefully not. Viserys, right? Viserys, whatever. You know, it's fine. <laughs> Sir Barristan. Sir Barristan, for sure. You want that would be a bold choice. That'd be a bold choice in terms of your decoration. Okay, so check out what canvaspeople.com can do. I have a couple of these and they've all turned out great. Very easy to do. Just upload your photo. Normally, the 11 by 14 canvas photo is $69.99 plus shipping, but for our listeners, they'll reduce that price to $0. You just pay the shipping. They're so confident that you're going to like it, they'll let you try it out for free. Over a million people have been satisfied with the canvaspeople.com experience. So to get this offer, Go to canvaspeople.com, upload your photo, select the 11 by 14 size, and use the promo code POST in the promo code box to get that $0 pricing at canvaspeople.com. Promo code POST. Okay, Josh, what's next? All right, well, let's talk about somebody who probably doesn't need Canvas People because she could just change her face to the faces of all the loved right. ones that she's ever missed in her life. So this is Arya Stark, the one person who does not need Canvas People. Uh, she is heading south, it seems, after her very explosive uh, appearance in the very first season of this episode where she first is wearing the mask of uh, Walder Frey. Uh, as many people pointed out, Rob, this is this was a great night for David Bradley, the actor who plays Walder Frey, who was also in the middle of uh, premiering the final season of Strigoi, of The Strain. Strigoi! Strigoi! 
Yes, Josh, I, we got called out on Twitter because we did not mention Strigoi in the podcast we did the other day. And I did right. respond, well, to be fair, when we went to the premiere, I did say that to you while the scene was happening. Absolutely. Rob and I were sitting together. The episode was unrolling. And as soon as we saw David Bradley, Rob turned to me and shook his hand furiously and quietly screamed, Strigoi! <laughs> so... Let it be known. It did happen. It is, it known. is known. It is known. It is done. All right. So let's talk about Arya a little bit and the people that she runs into here. Uh, Stephen Drabek writes in and says, since when are the Lannister soldiers such nice young men? In previous years, these kinds of characters would be creepy guys who would either try to kill you or tell Arya all the pervy things that they were going to do to her. And now we've got these millennial soldiers who are talking about helping strangers and hoping for daughters and obeying drinking age laws. What gives? Hashtag woke land. Lannisters. Hmm. Yeah. These were like the young, cool Lannisters. They were uh, the Melanisters. The Melanisters. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds bad. It uh, just sounds like something is really not good there. I think we could go with hashtag woke Lannisters. We can keep that hashtag. Okay. Hashtag woke Lannisters. Yeah, they, I mean, yeah. they're hanging out with Ed Sheeran. <laughs> they're very, you know, that they're, they're very much into, you know, we've never heard anybody in Westeros talk about, oh, I wish I had a daughter. Everybody's always like, oh, she didn't give me a son. Stannis uh, won't even look at his wife that she can't give him a son. This is the first person we've ever heard say, oh, I'm so happy that I'm going to have a daughter. They're not so bad, these guys. These seem like, you know, I don't think we'll ever see them again. Again, but it's nice to know that they're out there, right? Like that these guys are, uh, that there's such good people out there in the world of Westeros. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, we did not see how this ended up. For all we know, that the start of the next episode could begin with Arya tied up. And uh, these or Arya standing just like in like a field of corpses. Right. Either way. But we'll, we'll assume it was just a, a pleasant uh, exchange. Uh, Eric Lavalle had written, and this is really funny. Does Ed Sheeran's friend asking Arya if she's old enough to drink means that Westeros has a legal drinking age? Does this factor into the books at all? Uh, I can't recall if there's anything about drinking ages in the books, but it is kind of a funny thing to consider. Uh, like, nope, you're uh, you're not 21 yet. You're not old enough to to ride a horse. Like, how does this work? Yeah, I don't know what the legal drinking age is in Westeros. I think it's 10. <laughs> that that's the legal drinking age. I mean, Joffrey was getting pretty hammered on his wedding day. Yeah, uh, you try wrestling a horn of ale away from Lyanna Mormont. I dare you. Yeah, you know. I think that maybe that he might have been asking, like, do you li- like to drink, or are you old enough to be drinking? But I can't imagine that there is some uh, like a certain amount of name days you have to have had. Uh, there's also a lot of logistical questions, of course, about uh, how. Arya was able to become Walder Frey. You know, it was it was one thing when she was, you know, becoming people of sort of like a similar body type and really all that it would have to be was kind of a one-on-one face change, but she just turned herself into like an impossibly wicked and old man. How does that happen? And a lot of people asked about that. Jack had written in, how do the faceless men change their voices? Is it just unexplained magic? Brendan Fitzpatrick had written in, are Arya's powers going to allow for full shape-shifting now? Is this canon? Do we care? And my answer to all of that would be, for me, Rob, I don't really care. Yeah. As long as, as, as Arya can become Walder Frey and can become other people and it leads to fun scenes and it's not too big of a plot grievance, I'm probably going to be pretty okay with it. Let me just ask you a little bit of a different question, Josh. Now, we've seen with Melisandre that she was able to change her form back in the season six premiere. When Arya uses the face... 
is she actually physically transforming or is the face just like some sort of a glamour where she's still herself, but everybody just thinks they are seeing Walter Frey? I certainly hope it's a glamour. Yeah. You know, if it's not a glamour, then I feel like we're missing out on a lot of great scenes of Arya just being like, this is weird. Like, what's going on here? What is this guy working with? What is that? You know, I feel like there's a lot of Arya comedy that we're missing out on if it's not just a glamour. I would guess that it's just a glamour. Uh, but really, who knows? I think, like, if you really did the deep dive on on the Faceless Men and what their history is and what they're capable of, which I haven't really done, admittedly, uh, I think that you could probably come up with a bunch of different answers. Or maybe you couldn't, and maybe it's just kind of a leap of logic and you just kind of have to go with it. Who really knows? I think that that is the most logical explanation because yeah there is the the height change there's the voice change there's also we've seen uh jack and change uh you know skin color so and you know with just a face so i I really would believe that it's just some sort of a she's still standing there she's still aria in that moment but the magic properties are just convincing everybody that she's somebody else this is from jack may who had written in does aria's conversation with ed sheeran convince her to abandon her plan to go to King's Landing and instead travel north to reunite with her siblings. You think that she's going to cancel her tour after talking to Ed Sheeran? It makes me wonder. I don't know that this is going to be the same way Ed Sheeran quits Twitter. Right. Arya is going to quit her plan. Yeah, yeah, she's gonna she's gonna stop live blogging her revengeance plan across Westeros. I don't know that it's going to be the thing that causes her to not go to King's Landing, but as we talked about in uh, Road to Westeros, and I know Stephen brought it up during Snow It Alls as well. It's like if you put Arya on Cersei's path, like I start to worry about Arya. I start to feel like that's not the right character to take that character out, and that could be a really bad end for one of our favorite characters in Arya Stark. So I'm I'm. Still still feeling that it would be it's difficult to put her in king's landing and not have her be directly in harm's way and i just want to will her away from that possible fate so i do think that something is going to bring her back towards the north i think a scene like this does represent Arya realizing that just because they're lannister loyalists doesn't mean that they're the worst people in the world like maybe i should stop having such a black and white view of things a house of black and white view of things maybe i need to start thinking about what's really important and stop worrying so much about the war of the past and worry about the wars of the present and the future to kind of evoke Jon Snow there. Uh, So I think that something is along the way. I don't think that Ed Sheeran and friends are like the thing that convinced her to go back north, but I still think that's coming. And I think that this is something that's starting to, to push us in that direction. Yeah, for Cersei, what a surprise it would be to be seeing like a, if she gets like the Walter Frey treatment that, yeah, I'm Arya Stark and I'm murdering you. I'm like, wait, what? Uh, that... Uh, that that little girl from that I met one time back in uh, seven years ago, right? Just be a real shock to Cersei. I think it'd be. A like, I have so many other enemies that want to kill me much more than you. It's you. <laughs> Not me, but I'm talking about a Cersei. Like I wouldn't have even thought about like you know you as like the front runner Stark daughter to come after me. Like I've I've, I've completely forgotten about you, Arya. Right. I, I've I've only been thinking about Sansa. If I'm thinking about any of you at all. If Cersei was going to make a top ten list of people that want to murder her, Arya wouldn't even be on it. So probably not. Do yeah. both people have to turn their key to make it a satisfying murder? I think it would be ideal. I mean, I guess that there could be something satisfying to Cersei, like being taken down by someone. If there's like a great scene where it's kind of acknowledged, where Cersei's like, really? This is it? 
this is this is who comes and kills me like i you weren't even in my top 50 mm-hmm. like i th- i think that, that there's there's maybe some some kind of cruel fun irony to play around with in a scene like that that's that's actually the, the most excited about that possibility i've gotten but i, I still just don't think that that's going to be the way mm-hmm. no i don't think so either uh, let's stick with Cersei. Uh, our good buddy Mike Bloom has written in. Mike Bloom, who is uh, now covering Game of Thrones for Parade Magazine with Look really, really fun, really fun recaps. Rising through the ranks. Very proud of Mike Bloom. Uh, Mike Bloom writes in and says, in Euron's last appearance in season six, he told the congregation at the King's Moot that his big plan was to align with Danny. However, we open season seven with him going to Cersei and offering his allegiance to her. What do we think Euron's plan is here? Did he ditch the idea after his niece and nephew took off with their best ships and decided to pivot? Is he planning to betray Cersei at some point in order to f- uh, further his true goal of joining up with Danny? Does the change in her- in hair mean we're dealing with a possible evil twin scenario? And this is someone masquerading as Euron. Seven hells bent on screwing him over. Would love to hear your thoughts on the Euron Lucian of strategy here. Uh, so what do you think about all of that, Rob? Uh, is Euron coming to Cersei and being genuine in his desire to marry Cersei and be Team Lannister all the way? So I think it was more of a pivot and kudos to Euron on for being flexible in terms of uh, the big picture of what he wants to accomplish. I think that he looked at his situation and felt like, okay, I need to marry a queen. Here is Daenerys Targaryen who is off in the east. I'll get over there and partner up with her and that's going to be this uh, major strategic alliance when the ships get stolen by Theon and Yara and then they team up with her. He's like, okay, well that plan is off the table and at the same time here comes Cersei who blows up everything in King's Landing and now there is a uh, unmarried queen sitting on the Iron Throne and I think that he looks at her and says, okay, here's somebody that may need my services. So he's just adjusting his plan and filling in Cersei for Daenerys at this point. I tend to agree, but there are people who are skeptical still. Claire Lozano writes in and says, Euron tells Cersei that he's come to marry the most beautiful woman in the world, but I don't think he means Cersei at all. He never actually says her name or refers to her directly. I think he means Danny. I think Cersei is just a stepping stone for him and that after marrying Cersei, he'll look to murder her and marry Danny. Um, what I might side on to, Rob, is I do think that it's entirely possible that Euron would marry Cersei and then murder Cersei. But I don't think that he would necessarily need to marry Danny afterwards. I think that he would just be happy to be king of the king of the Seven Kingdoms. I just think that Danny has crossed him by partnering with the rival Greyjoy faction. So I think that he's looking at her as a potential person to conquer because she's with those stolen ships and with Yara, and he needs to take Yara out of the picture. So I don't know necessarily how he partners up with Danny after he takes out Yara and Theon. Jack writes in, Game of Thrones is filled with fleshed out and dynamic characters who usually fall in a moral gray zone. Cersei in the past has always been this way, but now that she has lost all of her children, is she simply evil or is there still good within her? Uh, what do you think about that, Rob? Are we at a place where Cersei has gone completely black hat and there's just no good in her whatsoever? She even says, like, when when Jamie tries to talk to her about Tommen, she says, ah, Tommen betrayed me. What's, what, what's, why are we talking about this? Uh, do you think that she's just completely evil now? So... I talked about this a little bit with Steven on Sunday night, Josh, and I felt like that uh, Cersei's redeeming quality was always her love for her children. And anytime she was painted in a positive light on the show, 
It was in response to showing how much she loves her children, how much she wanted the best for her children, and how much she was afraid to lose her children. And we got to see her mourning over the loss of Joffrey and over the loss of Marcella. But I just thought that this was so interesting to me that uh, for Tommen, she was just angry and not at the circumstances. She was angry at Tommen and she wasn't even in mourning in the least in terms of Tommen. I don't know in what way that she has any goodness uh, in her at this point in time. Do you see anything? Well, I think in that regard, Sarah Chan and our good friend actually wrote in with some interesting thoughts about Cersei. Uh, Sarah writes, can Cersei logically survive this season? I can't see room in Cersei's story arc for acknowledging a greater cause than her own quest for power. But the main plot of season eight has to be about saving the world from the Night King. And we need John and Danny leading their armies into epic battles against him, not Cersei. While I'm sure there's always going to be important plot threads around King's Landing and the Iron Throne, do we need to axe Cersei and leave the Iron Throne ambition to less flamboyant antagonists like Littlefinger or Sansa or even Tyrion. Uh, I think that there's that's something that I hadn't really given too too much thought of is is Cersei going to be able to like get over herself and join up with Jon and with Danny and whoever else is going to set their sights on the Night King. We talked a little bit about that during the road to Westeros, but this episode really does show that Cersei is so, you know, she's disregarding every enemy around her. She's speaking ill of the people she used to love the most in her world. Like what is what is it going to be that's going to take her away from that stuff? Is there anything that could remove her from that? Is there any sort of there is a, a a world beyond the world right in front of me that I need to start worrying about. Cersei just does not seem like that kind of person. I don't think she can make the pivot. Now, Jamie, I think he ultimately could come around to be part of a coalition with the Starks, with uh, with Tyrion, uh, with Daenerys. I, I could definitely see that, but there's no universe in where I see Cersei has like uh, this Scrooge-like turn of uh, character where she's like, oh, I was wrong all these years about you, Tyrion, and about everything that was going on. I've turned over this whole new leaf. Uh, I think that Cersei probably and the more we think about it, uh, I don't know if she makes it out of this season seven. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting thought. I really do feel like Cersei, she's such an important character. She has been from the very, very beginning of the show that it's so hard to imagine her not being there for pretty deep until the very end. But I mean, we're, we're already there. You know, we're basically in the final season. This is really just one big final season that we're talking about here with season seven and eight. Um, so, yeah, you, you could lose her here potentially. I don't want to because I really love Lena Headey. She's so, she's so good. She's been great. She's been great as this character. Um, let's move along. Let's go away from King's Landing for a little bit. Let's talk about what's happening at Old Town. Uh, let's take a voicemail from our friend Hannah, uh, who had a question about Jorah Mormont, who made an unexpected appearance here in Old Town at the Citadel. Do you think Sir Jorah has a better chance with Danny now that he's all grayscale e? Like, is it sort of a bad boy image? Like, is grayscale like tattoos in the uh, Game of Thrones world? All right. Well, 
that uh, that Hannah sounds familiar. Uh, what do you think? Uh, is Jorah now like the bad boy of Westeros with like his grayscale tattoos? No, I don't think that grayscale <laughs> is like a mark of a bad boy. It it's is, like, wow, that guy is hot. Mm, right. It's like, uh, hey, should I get Ebola? Because people will think that uh, I'm yeah. really outdoorsy and I've traveled to exotic places. No. Yeah. The answer is about- no. <laughs> I don't know about the pillar, but he's got the stones. Right, right. Uh, I, I mean, I was nervous of just uh, Sam picking up those dishes that uh, Sir Jorah had. So, oh, no, yeah. Danny should stay far away. Uh, she did instruct him to get better, and I guess he would be a bit of a rule breaker if he uh, disobeyed what she had to well, say. Well, he's trying. You know, you got to try. You got to try. And I think it, it, it does make sense that he would go to the Citadel to, to find out, you know, is there a cure for Grayscale? And lo and behold, he gets locked up or he's put in quarantine. We just don't really know exactly what's going on with Jorah yet and what his circumstances are. What put him in that cell? Is it because the Maesters are trying to keep him in isolation because they're trying to treat him? Are they trying to hide him from the world? Are they trying to figure out what to do with him? You and I talked about this a little bit on the Deep Dive podcast that we did earlier in the week, Rob, where we suggested the possibility, or I suggested the possibility, of this thing from the books that some people are worried about. It's like a it's a theory it's not confirmed at all but the maesters are more interested in a world that's based on logic and reason than anything supernatural and they're conspiring to make that world exactly as they want it uh would this fall in line with that this idea of locking jorah away because he's got grayscale and they kind of just want to like stick their fingers in their ears and pretend it doesn't exist i don't really i don't really know why you wouldn't just kill jorah mormont in that case like why not just dispose of the body to me, I get the feeling that the Citadel is a little bit like the, uh, to tie this back to the Walking Dead, uh, the uh, Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, where they have him there. And as we saw with the uh, Archmaester, that there was, uh, you know, some sort of like taking apart a cadaver and sort of like trying to get an understanding in terms of uh, diseases. I feel like that Jorah is there to be monitored and not necessarily there as a prisoner that the maesters are trying to... Like, there's no maester army. They didn't go out and try and capture Jorah and and put him there. Uh, I suspect he went there to be quarantined and and is having the uh, finest uh, scientific minds in Westeros trying to work on a cure. Uh, Brendan Fitzpatrick had written in, so Sam is totally going to let Jorah out and give him his family sword, right? Which is Valyrian steel, correct? That is correct. What do you, what do you think about that? Do you think that Sam and Jorah are going to hit the road and is Jorah going to be the guy who is wielding Heartsbane, the House Tarly ancestral sword? Well, I am more bullish on Sir Jorah after this week. Uh, I'm not sure necessarily about the passing along of the sword, but Josh, have you taken a look at any of uh, the intrepid screen cappers and uh, what they were able to pull from the book that Sam was reading? A little bit. I'm I'm uh, wondering if you have yes. based on your line of inquiry. So I'll I'll hand the floor over to you. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, I again uh, I wouldn't say that this is in the territory of a spoiler, but this is uh, along the lines of that. There's you know it's Game of Thrones. People go through this stuff with a very fine tooth comb. And in the passage that uh, Sam is reading, uh, a lot of people were calling out the dagger that was in the book, saying that that is the dagger that Littlefinger. Had 
had back in season one that Bran was attacked with, which was a Valerian steel dagger. But on the other side of the book, uh, there was uh, some text that was captured. And there are a number of threads on the Game of Thrones Reddit, which is an outstanding resource that anybody who wants to do an even uh, more deep dive into all the stuff uh, that uh, you could spend a few hours there easily. But there is uh, some talk about the medicinal properties of ingesting the dragon glass. And maybe could that ultimately be a cure for what's going on with the grayscale? And uh, looking back at uh, Shireen, the only known uh, recovered person from the grayscale, she lived on Dragonstone, uh, which had a, a lot of dragon glass. Could Sam and Jorah potentially end up going out on the road to go to Dragonstone for a cure to Grayscale? And do you think that Shireen, when she was on Dragonstone as a kid and was suffering from Grayscale, like she cured herself because like just like kids do, she just like picked stuff up and ate it. And she yeah. just like ate eight straight pieces of dragon Licked glass. Licked the walls, the- I think, was probably <laughs> what happened. And look, so yeah. they, they, kids do that. They pick things up off the floor as a five second rule. But she right. might have then, you know, had some dragon glass dust. Now, yeah. I don't just know. Just like sticking dragon glass up your nose by accident. It's like, oh, I didn't know that was supposed to do it. Right. Could that ultimately save Ser Jorah? I thought that Ser Jorah was a goner, but after these developments, I'm feeling uh, better about Ser Jorah. So we're going to send Jorah to Dragonstone to lick the walls clean for the rest of his days. I like it. I think it's fun. I would love to see a world in which Jorah Mormont survives Game of Thrones. I think that that would be terrific, and I think this is a fun way to do it, where he would have to live out his days on Dragonstone, who'd be close yet still so far away from Daenerys if she wins the Iron Throne and lives in King's Landing. But even if she stays in Dragonstone, there's still an idea of you know him serving her, or if she's away, he gets to feel still close to her by being in the Targaryen home. So I think that's fun. I hope, I, I'm not super hopeful for Jorah, just because I think that there is this ticking time bomb quality to his story that I don't know. I guess time bombs get disarmed in movies all the time. So this could go either way for me. I like it, though. I'll, I'll choose to be optimistic for George. Josh. Uh, one last thing before we jump off. I want to start a new segment here on the feedback show. We're going to bring you some of our top Game of Thrones uh, reviews in the iTunes store. Of course, you can oh, yeah. leave us your feedback and your star ratings over in the iTunes store. You can go to postshowrecaps.com slash G-O-T iTunes. And uh, this is a review. A five-star review comes to us from uh, Meg Wants to Know, who says, This is a fantastic addition to a podcasting dynasty. She says, post-show recaps, Game of Thrones coverage is top, not notch, and always Uh thoroughly dives into each episode while providing expected wit and room for audience members to send their ravens in to participate with their feedback. Also, sometimes you just need an immediate water cooler because you're having trouble coping that your favorite character has been brutally offed and Gilly is still on the show. So, wow, a very (laughs) anti-Gilly take from that. Oh, man. Wow, wow, wow. Well, listen... uh I'm very upset with your feelings on Gilly. Yeah. But that that aside, very, very happy with that review. Uh, I loved the top not notch joke. Uh, the top not stuff still cracks me up. All of that was so great. My brother kind of looks like Thoris of Mirror. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've seen pictures, he yeah. He hasn't changed his hairstyle yet, but 
uh, I haven't talked to him since the premiere, so I wonder. Uh, we might have to have a conversation or two. Okay. Josh, uh, what do you have coming up in between now and the premiere of episode two of season seven of Game of Thrones? Well, I am currently speaking to you from a hotel room in San Diego, California, Rob. Uh, I am here for Comic-Con. Game of Thrones is going to have a Comic-Con presence, so I will be doing a lot with that, but also other shows that are here at Comic-Con. I'm going to be covering for The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, some fun Westworld stuff. Some Stranger Things are happening here in San Diego, and that both involves the show and uh, plenty of things not involving Netflix as Stranger Things. Lots of strange things happening when Comic-Con rolls into town. So that's my life for the next few days and then i will speak to you uh, again for our deep dive show after i'm out of the comic-con trenches and i'll have some fun reports from that front i hope okay so follow everything that josh wiggler is working on on twitter he is at round howard i'm at rob sister Noah. i will be live once again with steven fishback after the episode this sunday night uh josh did a great job of teasing some of the things that were coming up in that episode stormborn uh in our deep dive podcast that's coming up Stormborn. yeah i mean uh first episode called dragonstone has a has a huge targaryen connotation stormborn being uh referring to daenerys stormborn who was born on dragonstone in the middle of a storm so very danny centric these first two hours of uh game of thrones and i believe uh there's something about queens in the in the title for the third episode so very Danny heavy. King of so Queens? Like is that what it is? King of Queens. King of Kevin King of James Queens is West showing West. up. Oh, no. Oh, God. <laughs> Paul Please Blart no. is going to make an appearance. Uh, Sir Blart. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What's the hashtag, Josh? Sir Blart. Sir Blart. Uh, you talked about the uh, seven realms of possibility as well. Oh, uh, yeah. That's good, too. That's long. So you get to choose. Okay. You get to choose. There you go. All right. And of course, uh, thanks to our sponsor. Sponsor Canvas people, uh, you can get that $0 pricing on an 11 by 14 canvas with promo code POST. Take care, everybody. Have a good one. Bye.